Amen. Well, if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to pick back up in our study of Hebrews this Lord's Day by looking at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. If you've been with us through this study and following along as we walk through Hebrews, you've seen over these last few passages this call to, to live by faith, to walk by faith, and the comparison to a race. At the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, we're called to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so last Lord's Day, we looked at one of the encouragements we're given as we run that race is not to grow weary. And we considered what it is that causes us to grow weary in our race and and we looked at the encouragement to, 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 to run without that weariness or without growing weary. We do that by looking to Jesus. We do that by keeping the right perspective, a perspective that's informed by the Word of God. We're called to remember God's Word, to read it and to believe it. And as we do, to understand, to believe, to trust that God is sovereign and that he is at work in our lives for our good and for his glory. And we need this reminder, especially at times when we are tempted to grow weary, at times of great suffering, of great trial. And so I hope that Hebrews has been an encouragement to you and will continue to be an encouragement to you as we walk through the days, as we run the race that God has set before us. And so today we're going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, where we're continuing to see this picture of running a race and here of the call to holiness and how we're to strive for holiness as we run this race. So let me read for us our passage for today, Hebrews 12, beginning there in verse 12. This is what God's holy word says to us. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, And by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray for our time in God's word today, brothers and sisters. Father, we thank you for your word And we pray that we would meditate on it day and night. We pray we would be like that picture we see in Psalm 1 of a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And all that it does, it prospers. Its leaf does not wither. Lord, help us to be like that tree. Help us to be ones who are are so close to the source, who, who are such people of the word that we see fruit, ongoing fruit produced in our life. And specifically today, as we consider this passage, Lord, help us to be a people who have the fruit of repentance in our life, 
who take sin seriously and who turn from it, that we might finish this race you have set before us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I started off by mentioning the New York City Marathon. As we consider this passage that calls us to a race, I talked about a a real race, the the largest race, in fact. The New York City Marathon, as I mentioned last Lord's Day, is the the largest marathon in the world. Over 50,000 people run that annually. And we talked about how there's all these qualifications to get in the race. So really you have in the New York City Marathon these elite runners who've already met all these qualifications. But as I mentioned last last Lord's Day, there are still people who don't finish this race. In fact, as I did a little bit more research on it, I was curious to know what what happens to someone who, who runs 15, 16, 17 miles of this race, but they can't finish. Well, they just leave them. Well, what happens? And I, I learned that there's actually a sweep bus. <laughs> It's a bus that follows along behind this marathon, and as people are injured, grow weary, run out of strength, aren't able to finish, well then they are picked up by the sweet bus. Uh, But the thing is, when you get onto the sweet bus, as soon as you step foot on it, your record is stamped with DNF, did not finish. My friends, again, I think this is such a picture for us of the Christian life. We are called in Hebrews chapter 12 to finish the race. We are called to run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are called to cast off the sin that so easily entangles us. We are called not to grow weary. We are called to press on and to finish the race. And yet as we look around the church today... As we look around the Christian community today, as we look around our world today, we see people who are stamped with DNF. We see people who did not finish the race that was set before them. And as we look carefully to their lives, we can identify some of the reasons that they stopped running. And so often as we identify those reasons, we see a common thread. And that common thread is sin. It is the sin that so easily entangles. It's it's an unrepentant heart. It's a desire that longs more for the fleeting pleasures of sin than for the eternal reward of the kingdom of God. So often as we look at the people who got on the sweep bus in this race of faith, And we find that they had no real pursuit of holiness in their life. And so when things got hard, when things got tough, they simply got on the bus and they left the race. And this is a danger that exists for all of us who run this race today. And that's why the writer of Hebrews is continuing to to warn his listeners, his readers. That's why God, through this word, is is warning us today not to be like those people. Not not to get on the sweet bus. Not to have our record stamped with DNF did not finish. No, God desires that we finish this race. He desires that we run it with endurance. But in order to do that, we need to strive for holiness. And that's what we see in this passage today. 
That, that's the point, I believe, about what the writer of Hebrews is communicating. That there needs to be a desire for holiness, a, a striving, a, a pursuit of holiness in our day-to-day lives. So how do we do that? Now, how can we practically strive for holiness as we run the race that God has set before us? Well, that's what I want us to consider today, and we're going to consider that by looking at at four ways we can strive for holiness as we run the race. The first one is this. We need to press on through discouragement. We need to press on through discouragement. Again, look at the picture that we're given here in verses 12 and 13. The writer says, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, this terminology here fits very much within the context, the the, the picture that the writer of Hebrews is giving in running a race, but it's not just wording that he comes up with. These are actually uh, quotes. These are terms that he's taken from other passages in the Old Testament that will help encourage the Hebrews and will help us today to run the race that God has set before us. He begins by using language from Isaiah 35, where we read this in verses 3 and 4. Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak knees, or weak hands, excuse me. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And here the prophet Isaiah is encouraging people in the midst of their fear and their anxiety to trust in God and not to lose heart. And he's calling them to press on in the midst of discouragement and to trust in the Lord. The writer goes on then to use language from Proverbs 4 verses 26 and following. Ponder the path of your feet, then your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. In this passage, Solomon is instructing his sons to keep a sure footing and a straight path in their walk of faith. He's warning them not to stray away from the wisdom that the Lord has given. In fact, the chapter that follows this one in Proverbs is very much a very clear warning against sexual immorality and against adultery. He's calling them to be on guard against this wickedness, this evil, this entanglement that lies out there and that can distract them from the path from the race that God has set before him and before them. So how do these passages then fit into the context of the book of Hebrews? Well, the Hebrews were in danger of growing weary and of not finishing the race that God has set before them. And the writer here is addressing the discouragement in their lives and calling them to press on. And he does this by citing two passages that deal with discouragement. Now, the context in Isaiah 35 is Isaiah speaking to Israelites who were during a time of great decline among God's people. Now, this was a time in the life of the people of God when they had refused to listen to God and they experienced the judgment of God. 
And God even at times gave them over to the hands of their enemies and oppressors. And now God's people are ready to listen to the Lord. And God's going to save them from their enemies. And He's going to restore them. But they were weak. They were weakened by their own sin. They were weakened by the sin of others. They were discouraged and perhaps they were ready to give up. And what Isaiah says to them here from the Lord is don't give up. Be strong. He's calling the people not to focus on their past failures, but to put their hope in the coming promises of God. He's reminding them that God will do what He said He will do. That God said He would save them and He will indeed save them. And so now they must trust in Him. That's very much what the writer of Hebrews is saying to the people here. And that's a good word for us today. Because all too often we are distracted and we are discouraged as we consider our past sins. We dwell on those things that can make us feel unworthy of the grace of God. And even worse, it can tempt us to return to it. And I believe that's why the writer here mentions not only Isaiah 35, but also Proverbs 4. Isaiah is speaking to the discouragement that relates to past sin. Solomon is warning his sons about the sinful desires that might lead them into future sins. He's calling them to stay focused on what God has told them, on the wisdom that God has given, to to walk the line, to stay the course, to stay on the straight path, to watch out for the sin and the desires of the flesh that so easily will lead them off the straight path and to do what God's called them to do. And friends, that's very much what we are called to do today. That The only way we will finish this race that God has set before us is if we stay on course if we stay on the path that God has set before us and we cannot stay on that path if our eyes are focused on our past failures or if our eyes are focused on future temptations and opportunities to sin we need to look straight ahead to the path that God has set before us in order to strive for holiness This is why we read in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So you you want one thing to do today? You you want one thing that you need to do in your Christian life that's going to help you to stay in the race? Well, what we read in Philippians 3, one thing you need to do is you need to forget what's in the past. You need to stop holding on to your past failures. You need to stop dwelling in your past sin. And you need to press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We can't dwell in discouragement over what has happened in the past. We can't look towards the sin of the future. No, we need to press on and run the straight path that God has set before us if we're going to strive for holiness and run this race. Second, we see we strive for holiness in this race by striving for peace with everyone. We're called there in verse 14 to strive for peace with everyone 
for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So there's a twofold call here where we're called to strive for peace with everyone and to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's a very sober warning here that if we're not walking in holiness, if we're not walking in righteousness, that without this holiness, no one will see God. It's a reminder to us of the very gospel truths that we are rooted in. That we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That because of our sin, just like Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned, we are separated from the presence of a holy God. We will not see the Lord in our sinful state. No, our sin must be covered. Our sin must be atoned for. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us. His blood was poured out to cover our sin that we might receive His holiness and His righteousness as He pays the debt of our sin so that now in that holiness we might come into the presence of God. But we're reminded here that if that holiness is not there, We cannot be in the presence of God. We must strive for holiness and we must strive for peace. Now again, holiness is the context, I believe, of this entire passage. This whole passage is talking to us about the sanctification process of growing in righteousness, of becoming more and more like Jesus, of moving further and further away from sin. Again, it's not a call to perfection in our lives. It's a call to trust in a perfect Savior in our lives. We're to strive for this holiness, and then we're told how we can do that. And one of the ways that the writer gives us here is through striving for peace with everyone. (laughs) Now, I checked the Greek on this one. Everyone means everyone. (laughs) It means each and everyone, that there are are no exceptions to who we are to strive for peace with. And so this is a sober warning to us. It brings the question up in our lives. Are we at peace with everyone, with each and every person? Are we striving to be at peace? And if we find a lack of peace there, then then that is a caution light, that is a warning light to us. Are we striving for it? Because if we're going to run this race, we need to. We need to strive for peace. Now again, consider the context here. The Hebrews are being reminded that they need to strive for peace with everyone. Now think of what that means for them. That means they need to strive for peace with people who are plundering their property. They need to strive for peace with people who are persecuting them for their faith. They need to strive for peace with people who are openly ridiculing them and mocking them and sinning against them. So how could they do that? How could they strive for peace with people who weren't at peace with them? Well, that's the question we have. But we need to be careful that in dealing with the difficulty of that question, that we don't set aside the very clear, sober warning here that our sanctification is directly connected to our ability to be at peace with those who have sinned against us, to be at peace with everyone around us. If we have no desire for that peace, then there is something missing. We've missed out on an important gospel truth. But... Let's consider that question for a minute. How can we, how could they strive to be at peace with people 
who were not at peace with them. Well, I think an important biblical principle for us to understand as we consider what it means to strive at peace is that striving for peace with everyone doesn't mean we'll be at peace with everyone. Just because we're striving to have that peace doesn't mean we will have that peace. That's why we read in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It seems there's a very clear understanding there that there's times when peace is not possible. It seems it's very clear there that peace doesn't just depend on us, but as followers of Jesus, as much as we can, as much as it depends on us, we are to live peaceably with all. So let's just think for a moment of what this looks like. Let's say there's someone in your life that they sin against you. And whatever way that might happen, they sin against you. The call of Scripture that's clear is that you should forgive them. But the question is, what if they never repent? How do you forgive someone who never acknowledges their sin and never repents of their sin? Well, here we have a a great reminder in Scripture of what this can look like. Consider Jesus on the cross. It's there on the cross that we see Jesus cry out in Luke Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so here's Jesus on the cross saying to those who are crucifying him, those who are openly mocking him, those who are sinning greatly against them, he is crying out a prayer to the Father that they be forgiven. But were they? Did they experience the forgiveness of God through the blood of Jesus Christ in the moment that Jesus prayed that prayer? And I believe the biblical evidence before us would say, no, they did not. There was no repentance. There was no turning from their sin in that moment. There is the offer of forgiveness. There's the price that is paid for their forgiveness. But they did not experience that forgiveness in that moment. In fact, as you continue on through the Gospels and then come to the book of Acts, you see there at Pentecost, Peter preaching and pointing out people who crucified Jesus and saying that His blood was on their hands, that they were guilty of what happened to Christ on the cross. And now there's something taking place in their heart that's radically different than what was happening at the cross. At the cross, they are mocking Jesus. At the cross, they are are scoffing at Him. But now God is changing their hearts. And so in Acts chapter 2, as Peter preaches, the text tells us in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. They weren't forgiven yet. They hadn't experienced that forgiveness yet. But now they're cut to the heart. And now Peter says to them, You want to experience that forgiveness? You need to repent. You need to be baptized. You need to publicly identify yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Jesus whom you crucified. If you'll do these things, Peter says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the text goes on to tell us that many of them repented and were baptized and became part of the brethren. Friends, this is a picture of the gospel. Christ died for our sin. 
But you will not experience forgiveness until you repent and turn from your sin and place your trust in Jesus. When someone sins against us, we can be ready, willing, and able to forgive them, but they will not experience that forgiveness, nor will we experience the fullness of that forgiveness until they repent. Without repentance, there is no true, full forgiveness. Now, we are not in control of whether someone else repents or not, but we are fully in control of whether we are ready, willing, and able to forgive that person as they repent, to invite their repentance, to stand ready with open arms, waiting and longing and praying for their repentance. And that's the call here. We're to strive for peace with everyone. We're to seek it. We're to pursue it. We're to be ready to forgive any and everyone for any and everything and know that if there is no peace between us, if peace is lacking, it should not be because of our unforgiving hearts. We are to do our part. Why? Because we know what it is to be forgiven. And that's the picture of the gospel we have in the scriptures. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We strive for peace with others because we've been made at peace with God. And that peace comes through the cross of Jesus. And we're called to carry that cross. But we cannot carry the cross of Jesus if we will not strive for peace with everyone. And so if there are relationships in your life today, if there are people that you are harboring unforgiveness towards, I understand that there are horrific things that happen in our lives where, where we just wall up certain people. I understand that there are times when we can't even consider what it would look like to be at peace. But friends, listen to the Word of God. We're to strive for it. We're to run towards it. We're to long for it. Because this is evidence of whether the gospel has truly taken root in our lives or not. And if we are harboring unforgiveness towards other people, and if today our heart is one of defiance that we will not forgive no matter what, we'll never be at that person no matter what, then it may be that we have not experienced peace with God. It may be that we haven't experienced the forgiveness of God because once we've experienced that forgiveness and that peace, well, God calls us to be at peace with everyone. We're to strive for holiness as we run the race God has set before us. We do that by pressing on through discouragement. We do that by striving for peace with everyone. And three, we do that by turning away from all bitterness. Again, verse 15, the writer says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Again, there's that picture there of crossing the finish line, of, of obtaining the grace of God, of, of receiving that gift of eternal life, of entering into glory. And he's saying to us, see to it that you don't fall short. See to it that you don't fall by the wayside. See to it that you don't get on the sweet bus. See to it that you don't fail to cross that line. And what might cause us to fail to cross that line? He goes on to give an example of something that might. He says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And he says that, that what will cause us to fall short, what will keep us from finishing the race, is a root of bitterness. Now, that's a phrase that, that we might use often. We might talk about 
well, well, don't, you know, don't let a bitter root grow in your life or, or that person's so bitter, they've got a bitter root. But it's important we understand here that the context of this comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29, beginning in verse 18, there's a very clear picture here uh, among God's people and, and God speaking to his people through Moses of, of what a bitter root is and what a bitter root does. At Deuteronomy 29, beginning in verse 18, God says through Moses, Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. This is the consistent warning we see among the people of God in the Old Testament that, that they be on guard against turning and worshiping false gods, the gods of other nations. No, they're called to worship the one true God. And here, there's a warning not to turn away from the one true God. And it goes on to say, Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. What is Moses describing here? He's speaking here of the damage that is done by the idolater that's in the Israelite camp. A person who turns their heart away from God and goes after the worship of false gods and false idols. He says that person is a root that's bearing bitter and poisonous fruit that the words of the covenant might be on his lips, but they're not in his heart. His hypocrisy and his apostasy are like a dangerous poison that will spread throughout the camp. And so the people of God are called to, to, to root out this bitterness. And so it's very clear here in Deuteronomy 29 that what this bitterness is referring to is the root of sin. And that's really the picture we have through the New Testament. That bitterness is used consistently in that context of wickedness and sin and turning away from God. For example, in Romans 3.14, Paul refers to the unrighteous as having mouths full of curses and full of bitterness. That that mouth that is cursing God is that mouth that is bitter towards God and is turned away from God. In Ephesians 4.31, we're told that all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So here... Bitterness is associated with those who have anger towards God, who are slandering, who have malice, who are doing the very opposite things of what the people of God are called to do. James chapter 3, verse 14, we're warned of having bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in our hearts. And so we begin to get a fuller understanding of what this bitterness is in the Scripture, that it's, it's anything that would that would take us away from the Word of God, the counsel of God. It's, it's wickedness, it's evil, it's a turning from God. And you think about how people use the word bitter even in our context today. We often think of it in something tasting bitter, but what does that mean? It means it stands out. It's not sweet on our palate. It's got a, a strong, maybe a, a pungent, sharp taste to it. It doesn't go along with the other things. It stands out to us as bitter. 
And friends, that's a picture of what sin should do in the life of the believer, in the life of someone that's striving for holiness. Sin should taste bitter to us. There should not be ongoing sweetness of sin. Then the scripture talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin, but for the follower of Jesus, that there should be a a, a pungent taste to sin. There should be something that triggers us to understand this is not a part of the diet of the believer. This stands out and this is wrong. There's nothing sweet about this. And so the picture here is that when we come across it, we should spit it out. We should turn away from it. And we should not allow it to grow a root in our lives because it will grow and it will spread and it will corrupt. The picture here is that we're called to repent of sin as soon as we become aware of it and not give it a home in our lives. And we're we're warned, we're given a sober warning here that, that a seed of bitterness will grow a root of bitterness and it will spring up and it will grow and it will take over. It would affect not just our lives but the lives of others. That's the context again in Deuteronomy. That's the context here in Hebrews. That this isn't something we just keep hidden away. No, it will produce fruit of unrighteousness and bitterness in our lives. And it will spread into the lives of others. And so the call to holiness is a call to uproot sin. To to weed sin out from our lives. And friends, that's not an easy process. And it's not a one-time process. It is an ongoing work of sanctification in our lives to constantly be pulling the weeds of sin so that they do not take root and they do not grow and they do not take over. I've shared in the past about opportunities I've had to go to West Africa and minister there. And on one of the first trips I went on, in fact, the first trip I went on to West Africa, I met one of the early believers in the village that we were serving in and and ministering in. His name uh, is Ibrahim. And Ibrahim, like everyone in this culture in West Africa, this this dry and barren land, uh, he is a farmer. He feeds his family. He survives off of his farm. And so one day uh, he asked me and the others that were with us if we'd like to see his farm. And we thought, well, that sounds very hospitable. We'd love to see your farm. We didn't realize uh, that it would take several hours to walk through the, the 115, 120 degree heat uh, in sub-Saharan Africa to get there. But we, we went on this walk and we got to this farm. And as we got it, we found that Ibrahim, like uh, everyone else in his community, he, he grew millet. And on this millet farm, he had a certain plot of land where there was his millet. And what his daily routine was is he would go out to his farm and he had kind of a makeshift uh, tool. It was just a stick with a, a blade kind of attached to the end with string. And in all day, every day, he would go out to that farm and he would just rake with that tool along the ground. He was digging the weeds out because the weeds so easily would just take over in this dry climate where his millet was growing. And if the weeds took over, then his millet would not grow and would not be fruitful and and he would lose his crop. And so... I asked him about how long this would take him. And he described, you know, all day, every day. He would start at one end of his field and he would slowly work his way over to the other end. And it would take him days uh, before he could get all the way across that farm. And I said, well, what happens once you finish? He says, well, then I'll start right back over again. 
Because the time he had rooted out all the weeds and gotten to the end, new weeds had started to take root. And so his season was just digging out weeds, and it was a long and laboring process. And friends, the Christian life isn't all that different. That there are seeds of sin that can easily take root in our lives. And they don't take a vacation, they don't take a break. And the work of the believer is to put sin to death. The work of the believer is to get out our tools, the the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, surrounded by the people of God, and, and to go to war with sin, understanding that Jesus Christ on the cross defeated sin and death. He has been victorious. But if we're going to run this race, if we're going to finish this race, we need to be serious about sin. We don't need to just let it grow and take root thinking, well, that, that one's not going to hurt anybody. Now, that one's just fine there. on time. That's just too difficult. I've, I've gotten rid of all these other ones. Surely I can just let a few grow. No, we need to be at work of digging this weed of sin out of our lives. If we're to strive for holiness, if we're to finish the race. When we strive for holiness through pressing on, through discouragement, through striving to be at peace with everyone, through turning away from all bitterness and and weeding out this sin. And then fourth, we're called, if we're going to strive for holiness, not to be deceived by the fleeting pleasures of sin. Do not be deceived by the fleeting pleasures of sin. Again, picking up in verse 16, we're called to see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here we're taken back to the book of Genesis where uh, you know that the story Esau was the firstborn son of Isaac and Rebekah. And as the firstborn, he had the birthright. That meant he was the, the principal heir to his family's fortune. But just not, not just that. And, and the covenant family that he was a part of, that meant that his fortune included that, 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 that blessing from Abraham of offspring and of the land. And yet what we learn in the book of Genesis is that Esau was unholy and unrighteous. And one fruit of that was when given the opportunity by his scheming brother to sell his birthright, to give up all of that for a single meal, he did it. Now, this doesn't speak well of his brother, but it certainly doesn't speak well of his own heart. The writer here is reminding his readers that Esau dropped out of the race. That Esau, he, he got on the bus. He, he didn't finish. Pastor John Piper says it this way. He said, Esau looked down the straight path that leads to life and he saw adversity and hunger. And instead of believing that God was in it and working it for His good as a loving, disciplining Father. He sold it for a single meal and He left the race. And the terrifying thing is He could not return. Friends, the picture here is that once we get that DNF, once we get on that bus, there's no turning back. Now, understand this, that the 
the picture we have from Scripture is that God will forgive genuine repentance no matter what you've done. That there's no one that's gone so far that you can't turn and genuinely repent and trust in the Lord. And yet we're also given in that same picture that there is a a hardening against God that can come in a person's life where, where their heart is so hardened towards God that they get out of the race and they have no desire to return to the race, at least not on God's terms. But they might want to come on their terms. And I think that's a picture here of Esau. Esau gave up his birthright. There was no getting it back. And later on, when he decides that it wasn't worth a single meal, later on when he wants it, There's some tears, but I don't know that there's genuine repentance in his life. And Esau stands before us as an example of what we're not to be like. It's a reminder, again, that we're to take sin and repentance very seriously. It's a sober warning to us. That we don't step on the bus and step out of the race with this thought, well, I can just get back in the race anytime I want to. That our soul is in danger today if we do not desire holiness and if we are not trusting in God and turning from sin. That our soul is in eternal danger. That's the warning and that should sober us. Not to give sin a place in our life, but to root it out and to turn from it and to run the race that God has set before us. And that's the picture we have in Hebrews 12. We're called to run the Christian life. To run this race that God has set before us, no matter how hard the course is. Friend, are you running your race? Are you running the race that God has set before you? And in running it, are you laying aside every encumbrance and every sin? Are you seeking to root sin out in your life or are you giving safe harbor to sin in your life? Are you striving for peace, not just with most people, but with everyone? Are you striving for holiness? Well, we're reminded here not to let our past sin or our future temptation or our present suffering to discourage us that we might grow weary or tempted to leave the racetrack. We are to realize that God is sovereign over our race and that all we encounter along the way is part of His sovereign plan and under the control of His sovereign hand. The course will be hard. But the reminder here is not to give up, not to get on the sweet bus but to hold fast to the gospel. And this reminder not to be like Esau, a picture of one who gave up the future blessing of God for the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so church family, even during this time of dispersion, (laughs) when we're not able to gather, I I am praying for you. Uh, Nick, Madison, others, we're, we're praying for you. And our prayer for our church family is that we would run the race and that we would finish the race well. That we would be serious about sin, that we would repent of sin, that we would trust in God, and that we would keep on running. 
So I want to pray that for us right now. If you would pray with me. Father God, I do pray that we would finish the race. I pray, Lord, for the members of Bloomfield Baptist Church that each of us would take sin seriously, that we would repent of it. Lord, that in these days when our our attention and our focus could be on so many distractions, so many discouragements, I pray, God, that through your words you would call our attention to striving for holiness, to striving for peace with everyone, to dealing seriously with sin, and, and to walking by faith. Lord, my prayer for my brothers and sisters here at Bloomfield Baptist Church is that every one of us would cross the finish line and that we would finish well and that we would stand in your presence and your glory one day. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.